this is the difference between high performance and elite. Just being physically fit isn't enough. You need to have the mindset that appreciates that your body will stop. Sorry, your mind will stop a lot more before your, your body does and to be able to actually push through those barriers. Welcome to another episode of Make Shit Happen. Today's guest is none other than Heston Russell. Heston, thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, no, nah, always pleasure. Sorry for the technical issues before. <laughs> they don't know that. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell us a bit about yourself. For people that have, because I've got a lot of friends that recommended having you on the show for various different reasons. And yep. um, my audience on this show is very, I guess, business orientated and yeah, gotcha. um, people that are trying, I guess, push themselves to the next level. And you come obviously from the military background, um, being in the it was it the commandos, is yeah, that the correct. commandos. Yep. So obviously that is a feat within itself, and getting to that stage. So I want to know a bit more about yourself and how did you get to that, and why did you go down that path? Yeah, no, cool. So I uh, grew up in a military family. Five generations of my family have served in the army, and so I was always around it. Um, I actually grew up here, schooling in Brisbane, and straight uh, out of grade twelve went down to the Defence Force Academy. Got my degree in arts, rugby, and um, being in the army, and then served 16 years, um, nine of those in special forces, and that's from 2010 onwards down in um, two commando in Sydney. And I guess my um, expertise is leadership and planning. So as uh, an officer, uh, as a commander, my job was planning missions from, for instance, 2012 in Afghanistan, 67 missions outside the wire when my platoon uh, killed over 100 insurgents, captured so many more. And this was planning two weeks and ahead to go and conduct a four-hour mission, but having 12 of those missions overlapping each other, given the um, authority and the planning requirements, through to leadership. And end of the day, that's probably what's got me, um, served me the best um, here and now. Definitely both those two attributes, leadership and planning, but particularly leadership comes down to people. And this is what's taken me a while to grasp myself, particularly in the life outside of the military, understanding people and how they perform, how they need to feel valued and how true leadership is motivation through inspiration. And I say that in the context of a lot of leaders who rely on their authority, which is relying on motivation through control and potentially through fear. It's the old stick or carrot, extrinsic motivations versus intrinsic motivations. And that comes from my last position in the military was running the commando selection course where we would take 120 people um, and at the end of a four or six week course, we would have 90% of those people pull out a form and withdraw it on request because we'd broken them down uh, physically and mentally to reveal what their um, emotional resilience was, their intrinsic motivation. And while I can't keep up with technology, I can't keep up with the innovations of the business world, what I can do is make sure I remember what is at the fundamental baseline of all those things, and that's people and how people can be motivated, encouraged, and brought together. Um, and my passion is building people and teams and putting them together into projects with purpose. Yeah, wow. So talking about the commandos, what's the process to actually get into that and become one? Yeah, cool. So I... When I did my selection course back in 2010, it was a six-week selection process. Now, it's like a four-week process. You could do the selection in three days if you wanted to. It's amazing what you can fit into um, a, a small period of pain. But there's usually either you have to have served in the army beforehand or the military takes all services. Um, 
and you go through a selection course and the selection course is designed to break you down, as I said before, and is filled with a whole bunch of individual tasks that are specifically designed to test a particular attribute that we're looking for, be that teamwork, communication, um, situational awareness, all these different things. And then there's a reinforcement cycle. So the selection course picks the person who is most likely to succeed on the subsequently 10 or 12 month reinforcement cycle, which is back-to-back courses in close quarter fighting that we use for hostage rescues, jumping out of planes, jumping out of helicopters, explosive demolitions, vehicle operations, all these sorts of things to completely get you up to a level of not just collecting competencies, but being competent. And then you get your beret at the end of that. And then to be honest, the training continues. So it's about a 12 month process just to, and about one and a half million dollar investment per person to get them from um, where you are at the start through to being a uh, beret qualified commando. So one and a half million dollars per person. At least. Yeah. I, that is insane. I used to, again, run it and you sort of put on the costs of all the assets and platforms and helicopters and fuel and roll. Like, you know, we'd fill, we have a mock-up helicopter out there at the uh, mock-up um, passenger aircraft out there at the range, mate, and we would fill the whole thing <laughs> and do hostage scenarios well. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's and it's push to the limit training. A lot of people get injured. A lot of people go through fears during that training. It's the closest we can get to simulate what at the end of the day might be uh, a real life or death situation. What is the fallout rate of, of this program? Yeah, so the selection course is where you receive the most attrition. Again, you probably have about 100 or 120 people about to uh, start the course. That's probably from about 1,000 applicants each year. And then uh, you usually get about 30 or 40 left at the end. So on mine, we had 120 start, I think 40 finish, and then 30 of us made it through the reinforcement cycle. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's obviously extremely difficult. It is, but um, it's difficult in a different sort of way. Mm-hmm. So we've had, they opened up this direct recruitment scheme where you could have um, someone who'd had a lot of life experience and they've gone through a selection panel to come off Civvy Street, go through an accelerated six-month, year-long training to get them up to speed. We had former Ironmans, had a former Olympian tryout. Um, and to be honest, they were some of the first people who failed out because there's physical, but then there's emotional. And there were points where we would have to stop the activities on the course because people would just keep going until limbs broke or their shoulder came out of their socket because they were so connected with what they're doing. And not like, you know, dumb button your head up against a brick wall, but people who were just so committed that they would let their bodies go through whatever was required. And that's the person who has the character attributes that we can spend the next year training with the best people and instructors and equipment and resources to be whatever they are, because you have a canvas that has all the attributes to perform regardless of anything else around them. And they're fully connected with that intrinsic motivation. That's insane. And with, with, when it comes to, I guess you spoke about the physical attribute versus, I guess, the mental attribute. Do, yeah. Are you looking more for the mental attribute in that regard when it comes to, I guess, selecting? Yeah, there are different phases and stages and even on the selection course, there's an individual phase and a collective phase. There's absolutely really high um, fitness level requirements um, and a lot of people don't meet those or will break trying to meet them. And we work with organizations like the Australian Institute of Sport and all this sort of stuff for lead up training and all that. But um, there's a huge physical component to it. But just being physically fit, this is the difference between high performance and elite. Just being physically fit isn't enough. You need to have the mindset that appreciates that your body will stop. Sorry, your mind will stop 
a lot more before your your body does and to be able to actually push through those barriers. And when when it comes to, I guess, the commandos, because like me personally, I don't know the difference. Yeah, the yeah. commandos versus, say, the special forces. SAS. Yeah. So yep. what, what's, what's the difference between the commandos and the SAS? So they're both classified as special forces. SAS is over in Perth. SAS um, has been around longer than the commandos in their current context. The commandos are based in primarily um, Sydney and are a legacy from the independent commando companies that were in World War II. Um, SAS is much more long-range reconnaissance, smaller teams, individual-type tasks, whereas commandos is a lot more direct action, larger teams, team and platoon-level sort of operations. Um, it's definitely evolved over time. Afghanistan is probably a very poor demonstration of the differences between the two. But to break it down for those who Google, SAS has a sandy-coloured beret, commandos have a green-coloured beret. And if you can pick those two, you're doing better than 90% of the media who report on me. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess the question is, who's tougher? Uh, that, I mean, it's all in context. <laughs> you know, I'm biased for my guys. Uh, we did different jobs. But, yeah. Um, yeah, for me, particularly the commando capability comes from that team. SAS guys are happy to be deployed a lot more individually and in some out-of-uniform sneaky-picky tasks. You know, I've got my guys together, you know, doing some amazing stuff that you'll see like in the movies, you know, literally in the heat of battle, fire and bombs and everything else going off. Um, and our strength is in our ability to shoot, move and communicate in those conditions. Um, and it's pretty magnificent to watch. I've actually literally been putting together, I've been putting together each Friday, I've been releasing a, an episode on my YouTube of um, my trip in Afghanistan in 2012. It's now 10 years. I'd literally be over there here and now. Oh, wow. So each Friday I put out an episode of just parts of some of the missions that I'm allowed to have kept the footage um, and putting it together. And it's pretty nostalgic watching. It's pretty wow. basic at the moment, but it'll get better as the weeks go on. So, so how um, what's, what's your handle if people want to go up and, and look at the YouTube? Uh, so it's youtube.com slash Heston Russell. Heston Russell. It's literally just my name, two S's, two L and Russell. Okay, fantastic. I know people definitely want to go and watch that. Yeah. Um, and what dictates them allowing you to show certain footage and not so certain footage? Yeah, well, so before you leave, you have to actually hand in all your helmet cam footage and everything, and it's scrubbed by the intelligence people to remove metadata to make sure there's no, you know, people being killed in it. There's not any sensitive equipment in it. Um, I still protect people's faces and all that sort of stuff, so... It's difficult, unfortunately, all the good stuff's removed, but yeah. there's still some great context, particularly as people like romanticize about this sort of stuff. You know, education and understanding is how we defeat this sort of uncertainty and fear. What would you say would be one of the biggest lessons or I guess few of the things that you've learned from your time in the commandos? Oh, good question. So uh, I'm a professional problem solver, and I think the biggest part is appreciating what can be achieved when you do the work in planning and have a team that you're able to motivate to achieve those things. I think particularly putting that into what I've learned outside of the military, it's so hard to find a team that is so aligned on an intrinsic value, so much as extrinsic, um, and just appreciating the next level that can be achieved and unlocked through the application of proper leadership as opposed to authoritarian leadership. And I think it's been just not settling for mediocrity, not settling for this can't be done. We always had a commando can-do attitude. Um, and the last one that I always take away is when you're awarded, presented your commando Green Beret, it comes with the saying, daily renewable contract. And that's forcing yourself to be relevant and have earned that every single day. You can imagine, particularly in an organization full of you know hyper alpha males, hyper successful, extremely competent people, 
it'd be very easy for many of us to have done something great one day, win an award, win a medal, have, you know, risk life or limb, and to carry out that through and rest on that as our laurels for the rest of our life. Um, particularly with the nature of the operations we have, the innovation and personal evolution that is required did not allow that. And um, that's one key thing that I push myself to outside of service here and now, as you probably see so many people find it so easy to hide behind emails and rest on laurels. Whereas um, if you, you are truly exposed and live that authentic daily renewable contract, that's where I really feel you get out of your own way and achieve a lot more. And like I've got a few mates that have been in the army and have done their time and they've come out and I guess one of the things they always say to me is how hard of a time they've had adjusting from being in their time there and coming back into, I guess, civilian lifestyle. Yeah. Did you did you find a similar experience with that? Yeah, it's a, it's a culture shock. And I've uh, I campaigned so hard for this Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide that's on at the moment after going through my own mental health and suicide crisis, realising that the military is fantastic at indoctrinating people into a collective community and a purpose that is always before yourself, but then is terrible at reconstituting that individual identity before we um, transition people out. We do what we do in corporate Australia and give people a CV or a resume that is meant to amount to their new identity. And within the military, you are held to literally a higher standard. There's an additional set of defense force disciplinary acts where you'll be charged for being late to things and you know, you'll be fined and all these extra criteria where you're forced to adopt values of responsibility, teamwork, leadership, accountability, integrity. And you have a look around Australian society these days, responsibility is replaced with entitlement, leadership is replaced with spin and anything else in between. You know, there's a lack of accountability, but we don't need accountability if people had integrity. So there's this entire different set of values now displayed by the wider society and the sh- terrible part is that us in the military are trained to adapt to our new environment so quickly. Yeah. And you actually go through this fragmentation of your own identity and start going down a path that you don't like. And for some of that, it takes too late. And you don't have that team, that environment around you to keep you on track. And it takes some people, you know, one to five years to go through what I call the pendulum swing and come back to who they are comfortable in their identity outside of service as opposed to looking back saying I used to be and measuring themselves against um, that uniform version of themselves. And what, how, how did you best, I guess, go through that yourself? Was, it, was there, obviously you would have had help externally from being a part of the force and, and yeah. whatnot, but um, for guys that are listening that might already be going through what you're just speaking about, yeah. um, what was something that helped you a lot? Uh, a big fault that I made in my transition from the military was look to outsource a lot of my problems to things like the Department of Veterans Affairs and all the support that's meant to be there. And those things takes 18 months to five years to sometimes turn around and support. And as opposed to doing what I spoke about before, getting out there with a can-do mindset and solving my own problems, I started to sit back and become entitled and expect others to do things for me. So it took me, you know, a, a critical moment um, to realize that I'd, you know, resorted to those values and to get back to who and what I was. And then just to start connecting with that experience I had and put it forward into responsibility and community. I always talk about community and purpose. Community is that, that, that group you have around you that just helps you to be the most authentic and accountable version of you. Um, and then purpose is what changes us from just surviving to thriving. And what happens too often is we are individuals who connect with purpose and make that purpose become our identity. But when that purpose ends, when the relationship ends, when that job ends, when whatever ends, 
we're back to being ourselves. And if we haven't put our time to invest in those around us who will help us to be comfortable with who we are and find new purpose, that's where people isolate and all these issues happen. And I speak so much on the correlation between what so many have gone through the last couple of years with COVID and what too many veterans go through with the self-isolation that occurs, not feeling relevant in today's society. So two things. First and foremost, find those people who you can rely on, who can be around you without the need for there to be a purpose. And then also look for the ability to find purpose that is service, the ability to put something else before yourself because what you lose when you leave the Defence Force is proactive resilience. You have the team and you have the mission always as your priority before yourself. And they are those proactive layers of resilience that stop issues from hitting you directly outside of the military when it's just you looking after yourself. You don't have those layers of armor in front of you unless you actually build them back up. Because uh, Yeah, and I, and I agree with that. I think there's a lot of people feel like they are alone and that they don't have the, the help there. Yeah. But you have to participate in your own rescue at the end of the day. And if you don't want to be helped, you won't get help. That's it. You can put your hand up or you can start swimming for the shore. Also, I mean, it's just communication. This is mm. such a massive issue for so many, not just veterans, but particularly guys in general. It's having those conversations and saying, hey, look, I'm struggling. You know, One of the first lessons I used to teach the officers who passed the commando selection course was I'd take them through the book called The Five Love Languages. Replace the word love with the word value, acts of service, quality time, giving and receiving gifts, words of affirmation, physical touch. It's actually what we need in order to feel more human and satisfy us emotionally. And it's actually what a lot of people were forced to realize what they needed most during COVID. And I realized that the way in which I feel value from others is quality time. I spend all of my time in acts of service for others, but I don't have enough people around me who will just be around me for the sake of supporting me as opposed to wanting something from me. And it's actually realizing that everyone needs all five of those love languages and to actually go about establishing your community around you with people who provide you with those different elements. I have my three-year-old sausage dog who provides me with quality time and affirmation, everything else in between. And literally, it makes such a huge difference on your own personal mental health to be able to put into everything else, every other purpose that you find. It's, it's, it's funny you mentioned you say people need all five, but a lot of people seem to think they only have one or two that they respond to. Yeah, and they, they're your primary ones. They're the ones, you know, my love, the way I show value is through acts of service. I love doing that. Mm. But the whole thing is, and this is what we did on the selection course, mate, we would target each individual element. So we would send people out on a three-day navigation exercise where they wouldn't talk to anyone or see anyone. We would do whole periods of silent running where we would provide them with no verbal or nonverbal affirmation. We literally would pull these apart to get inside people's heads to make 90% of the people on the course fill out their own withdrawal and own request form. It is natural human behavior. And unfortunately, I can now draw a lot of that correlation to, again, what people have been through through COVID, what I see people going through through mental health and suicide um, ideation and issues, and truly realize where we can actually proactively establish those support mechanisms around ourselves and around others to help to prevent as opposed to look to um, treat and cure afterwards. It's crazy how structured it all is when you talk about, you know, the reasons why you're doing this and why you're doing that. And it's all obviously to get a specific result out of people when they're going through the course. Yeah. Um, moving on, I guess, past from your, your, your time in the commandos, what, what are you doing now at the moment? Obviously, I see you're getting into the politics 
side of things as well. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So the last two years saw me come out of my own mental health crisis and really take on the system, campaign for the Royal Commission, speak up on behalf of those accused generically um, among the war crimes as opposed to those individually identified. And that led me to going to Canberra so much that I saw that's where the problem is. And I raised the Australian Values Party, AustralianValues.org.au. And I had a run at the last federal election and I was unsuccessful, but I learned so much of Australian voters and the Australian electoral system and how so many people don't actually care, yet we're all, <laughs> we all have to vote, but we don't educate people on how to vote. Yeah, correct. Um, but coming out of the Royal Commission, I founded my own charity, uh, Veteran Support Force, bsf.org.au, and we provide proactive support to veterans and families to engage with the Royal Commission and also just do projects that bring people together with, pers- with purpose in the veteran community. So those two organizations are my passion. Um, and outside of that, I do a bit of public speaking. I just, mate, if you could get me out there going around talking to people about the lessons I've learned and wish that I learned sooner than I made my own mistakes, young people, um, people going through their own identity crisis, people going through their own sexuality crisis, people joining the military, um, all those sorts of things. That's my sort of personal passion as well. And what made you want to get into I guess, politics side of thing. Was it helping out the vets? Was it because your love yeah. of, I guess, Australian people? was like What, what was the reason? Yeah, problem solving. Problem so solving. I, I'm sick of solving the problems that are flowing down from what I saw as uneducated, unqualified people in parliament who are facilitated by staff members coming straight out of university um, and who are there worried about public opinion as opposed to doing detailed planning like I had to do before I did any mission overseas. Uh, and thought that I could do that um, focusing on values because values are that bedrock from which, you know, we're able to actually position where we go. But, you know, that was my own sociological experiment to realize that most Australians, you know, values are too aspirational or they're controlled by religious ideology or racist ideology. And it was really fascinating for me. But yeah, the whole thing is, is problem solving and looking to get in there and get our country back on track, mate, because this is it. The biggest part I miss about my time in the military was we didn't have all these culture war issues that are going on outside of the military at the moment because it came down to that daily renewable contract. It came down to how you turned up and how you performed and who you were when you did that. We say competence and character. It didn't come down to your skin color, your sexuality, your religion. It came down to what you were doing, which could potentially lead to the loss of life or limb or saving life or limb. And the issue is without that immediate purpose and accountability that was so intrinsic to that organization, you get what I call the 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 cancel and the cancer that is, you know, toxic leadership outside where, you know, you only get to see the impacts of bad leaders and their decisions days, months, years down the track. And there's no authenticity, there's no accountability. So that was the higher purpose. That still is the higher purpose, but I think it's going back to realizing that you don't need to be in charge to do that because the way a democracy runs, it all comes down to the people and I need to get back to focusing on people and purpose, which is sort of what really got me back on my own personal track. And and where do you, like, what's what's your main goals with um, the Australian Value Party? Like, what, where, do you, where do you see it going over the next five, ten years? Yeah, good question. Our initial focus was really defense and veterans. The party was initially formed in order to follow through the work we commenced with this Royal Commission, knowing that it will be finished and those recommendations implemented. For me, it's really being involved any way I can in the future of our country. Our country has some big decisions coming up when, unfortunately, Queen Elizabeth dies 
Um, there's some really big questions that need to be asked. And for me, our country has been going through an identity crisis and there's an opportunity to reset and refocus our country together, unifying it. And at the moment, I don't see others with the ability to do that because they're stuck in their left or right-wing ideologies. And I want to be a part of bringing things back to a centrist-focused, a values-focused, and bringing people together with purpose. So what that looks like is we're going to keep continuing. We've actually launched the Angry Victorians Party down in Victoria with um, some of our candidates running up for the Victorian state election in November. Yep. And, mate, that's just a three-month uh, analysis of the federal election at a sociological level, going from aspirational values to relatable emotion being anger um, and having some fun with some key policies that are focused on mental health, small business down there, um, and putting some people power to task. So we're going to keep testing and adjusting as we go around to state elections and then see where we're at in the next federal election and go from there. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think it's great what you're doing. In, in regards to, um, I guess, your time in politics and learning what you have, Like, what, what's one of the biggest things that surprised you? Uh, the alignment with media. I never truly appreciated that. I had so much support in the media the last 18 months when I was just really focused on speaking on veteran issues. Mm -hmm. And then when things got political, setting up my own party, the entire right-wing side of the media, who had previously been my friends and I wrote letters, articles in the paper and was on you know, shows every week, just went completely silent and we were completely, completely blocked out. Uh, really? even though being so proactive in putting out media releases and activities during the election. And I just truly did not appreciate just how already aligned that is. And it comes down to money and it comes down to all that good stuff. And as opposed to relying on that so much, which is, to be honest, how I got so much of my success on the veteran campaigns beforehand, it's actually going back to focusing on the people who are what politics is meant to be about. And I got caught up in the media spin, I got caught up in my own success. So that was the biggest lesson learned. You've got to take it back to grassroots. And with your, pub with your public speaking, did you just naturally have the gift of speaking? Like obviously you speak very well. Did you go through and do your own sort of training on speaking or did that just come naturally to you? Well, that was, I think that's just part of my job in the military. So yeah. as a part of my job as a platoon commander, it was to stand up and give the orders. And some of those orders would go for an hour and a half. Really? You know, oh, yeah. Just an hour and a half. Oh, yeah. Details. Everything from, you know, it might be a, a fire, phase, fire phase operation that commences with lifting, you know, 60 people in eight different helicopters in two separate lifts from this base, transiting through another, inserting, walking onto target, exfilling off target, all this good stuff. And um, all the assets and layers and intelligence in between, all the different contingency plans. If this happens, this is what we'll do. If this happens, this is what we'll do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really detailed and intricate and particularly my job there in giving those orders is also to convince everyone to believe in the mission. And that's that whole leadership piece. You can't stand up and sell someone on going out there to risk their own lives. They won't believe in it if you don't believe in it. So my job is to put in the work beforehand. And if you see me talk, you won't see me really talk about things that I'm trying to sell. I'm talking about things that I believe in. And I think that's where a lot of my speaking skill that people seem to connect with comes from because it does actually come from an authentic place with uh obviously when you're talking about all the details on the on the missions that you're doing and they can go for an hour and a half and all that crazy stuff yeah coming back and you know just working you know you got you said you were in your businesses that you were doing beforehand and obviously yeah. working with you know your avp party at the moment yeah does that make all that seem like a, a cakewalk uh it is 
interesting because part of my training and construct is compartmentalizing things mm. and i it feels like a different life and that's been part of my journey and progression has actually been remembering the things that i have done and making sure i bring them forward with responsibility not entitlement not i have done this and you know when the media makes you feel this big or when something new kicks up, it's like, hey, hold on, you know, apply those same principles. Remember what you have done because this is the biggest issue, mate, in this hyper-anxiety-driven society at the moment where social media and everything else is making us look forward, forward, forward. One thing we're terrible at is self-reflection. One thing we're terrible at is self-review. Again, and I've built those people around me to help me remember that I have done these things. And I speak to my old work buddies you know yeah those connections that be like hey you remember that time you're like yeah i do why am i sitting here worrying about the next press conference like chill with stuff no one's going to die yeah. based on what i say here and now on the camera but if i go in there thinking that they are i'm going to you know compromise what i'm trying to do do you think that's one of the biggest issues right now is like the general population and the younger generation dealing with you know anxiety and depression would you put a bit of that on the pre uh, on the precipice of social media, smartphones, constantly having something buzzing in your pocket, not being present in the moment? Yeah. Would you would you agree with that? Being present in the moment. So most people in their mental health struggle with either anxiety, what's next, what's next, what's next, will I be good enough, blah blah blah, or depression, mm. FOMO, fear of missing out, comparing yourself to what was. The ultimate, the best treatment for and cure for mental health is actually bringing yourself to live in the moment. Things like watching my puppy play for 30 seconds, watching a small child be authentic, watching the oceans, doing your breath work, all those sorts of things, whatever brings you into living in the moment is actually the best way that we invest in our mental health every single day. The amount of people who are literally going for a walk on their phone and in between the status of looking back or looking forward and not living in the moment. That is where true health and wealth comes from. And whatever we can do, I now have a newfound appreciation for the arts. People are going watching shows. Whatever you can to bring you in the moment and bring your mind to here and now, that's what we're missing more of. We're overstimulated and it's filled with everything else. It, it always fascinates me. I notice you know, what a lot of people tend to do, and I'm guilty of it myself, is people, you know, before they go to bed, they can't go at least half an hour or 45 minutes before going to sleep without touching their phone. Yeah. First thing they do when they wake up, oh, I've got to check my phone. Yeah. Like, 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 I try to myself, I try to wake up if I'm going to go to the gym, I'll go and train or, you know, I go up to the steam room or do something like that where a lot of people cannot go yeah. 30 minutes before before going to bed or waking up. They, they just have to touch their phone. And it fascinates me that social media has now become this thing where, as you said, people, it's like they have this FOMO where if they don't check their phone, it's like they're missing out on what potentially is going on in their phone or on the app or whatever, yeah. but people just are struggling so hard to be in the moment. Yeah. And that's definitely something that I think a lot of people need to get a lot better at. And also just being grateful too. Like I think a lot of people don't realize how good we have it here in this country. Yeah. And, you know, you hear about some of, I mean, everyone's got their own issues and, and problems, but um, I think a lot of it comes down to having perspective on you know, where other people are in their journey and what do you have and what do you have to be grateful for? Yeah. And, you know, to live in such a great country like Australia, like we could be in much worse conditions than what we're in at the moment. And yeah. I think a lot of people, especially the younger generation, don't realise that. Well, spot on, mate. You said the word perspective. And that's the one thing I've had to draw on is the amount of different countries and different situations I've been in. 
a lot of people don't have that perspective. We're on this beautiful insulated island down here. And that's why I want so many people to travel and get that perspective because this is what social media is. You're comparing to the highlights of life. We're not comparing to the lowlights of life that everyone else is out there and seeing. And it's so important. You know, people are, are constantly looking at social media and all these other things because at the end of the day, to sit alone in your own space and silence is uncomfortable for mm. people. And again, lockdowns and COVID realize that. When there's nothing going on in the world, how uncomfortable were people? And that's the secret is to try and train people. Now, some people have to look at their phone before they go to bed. Some people have to look at their phone when they get up. I'm one of those people because there's such a huge gap that I'm trying to plan either side. And that's okay if that's you, but just know that you have to plan in your day for an hour where you leave your phone at home when you go for a walk and you have a look at and try and notice the colors of the leaves of the trees that you go and see because we're all looking down. Look up and about. Go watch the waves in the ocean. Go watch two birds making a nest. Put an hour in your day where you force yourself to be in the moment. If you're as disciplined as you and do that first thing in the morning, last thing at night, then like bravo, do that to you. Just remember that everyone's so individual. So I would just challenge people to find an ability to do that and see what makes you feel uncomfortable. See what you miss. That's how you start to do that own self-reflection. And that's that personal mastery Understanding what makes you tick is actually the secret to make you the best at anything you apply yourself to. Because again, you are the basic building block of whatever project, position, title, relationship, whatever else is in between. And until you fully know who you are, how are you going to know how you can apply that and how that's going to impact others, but also how and when you might fail when you don't have those parameters or stimulants around you. And that's that's the biggest challenge. So many people look for this self-help education, read this book, sit down and learn yourself. Mm. When you feel lonely, when you feel incomplete, when you feel agitated, figure out what is impacting you or what is missing and take a mental note. That is literally what why we do a selection course, not because we want to test someone to see how they go or how they break. That selection course will always be the measure of when I was truly tested to limits that I never knew I could go to. So when I've been in combat, when I've lost people, when I've felt hurt I've never felt before, I have this benchmark that I know I can push on from. And it's that perspective that you either have to build into your own lives or go out and find. It's 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 quite um, astounding. I know uh, Jordan Peterson, one of the greats that a lot of guys look up to and watch, yeah. he said he does this thing where he, with his friends, uh, when they're having like if it's family dinners or whatever, he he has a bowl as they're walking through the front door, and he makes everyone put their phones in yeah. the bowl. And um, he said it's actually amusing. Um, he goes, I take a mental note of how many times people go to reach for their phone in their pocket, or they go to look for it at the table, forgetting they left it in the bowl. Yeah. And he's like, people. Um, and Elon Musk also made a similar point: yeah. is people don't understand how reliant we are on technology now. Yeah. Like we, we talk about, you know, humans becoming, you know, biomechanical where we will have like an extension of us that's already um, you know, technologically um attached to us, but we already do. Yeah. It's a smartphone and people can't go anywhere without it these days. Which is just the creativity that comes from allowing things to enter into that space. Holding mm -hmm. that space for creativity to enter. Again, throughout my career in special forces, you couldn't bring your phone on to base. Mm. You would leave even the little call Nokia phone you had had to be left in the black box over there because we've known 
we've been targeting people's on their phones since 2010, mate. The rest of the public's just catching up to what can be achieved on these things. Yeah. It's when you don't have those distractions and when you're surrounded by people that you're enjoying in the moment. You know, this is like the people who you form the best connections with, be that personal or relationship, are those who make you forget about your phone, who make you forget about everything else that's going on outside those four walls. That's that environment that I came from working within the military by design, but also by product of the people and the purpose we had. That's the hardest part when there aren't those same connections or people looking for those same connections or projects with that same connection outside of. So that's why I really leave your phone in the bowl, whatever you needed, create that space and see what can happen when you finally allow the creative parts of your brain to unleash as opposed to the operationally loop closing focused. Absolutely. And I think it's such a huge point that people don't put enough um, importance on. When it, when it comes to, I guess, the success that you've had in your career and your life, mm. um, how much weight would you put on your, I guess, daily habits? Oh, big. I think the biggest weight I put on is my personal values, mm. knowing that daily habits can change. But um, yeah, I have, my set of values are called rails, responsibility, authenticity, integrity, leadership, and service. So I'm either on the rails or I'm off the rails. And, uh, and then it comes down to the people who help me stay on those rails. But as far as our daily routine goes, spending that time with my dog, is huge for me. Working out or finding a way to move each day is huge for me. And particularly my routine and structure around my eating and my nutrition is such a massive part for me. I really enjoy traveling and that gets disturbed a lot. But when I am actually eating the right nutrients for my body, I remove that guilt, I remove those issues and it really helps me focus and get into a routine. As far as I work from nine to five or set hours. I, I don't. I work as the work comes in and I'm okay being reactive, but I absolutely maintain a couple of distinct hours in the day where it's like time for me to go and switch off and allow whatever um, to enter in. So I like to always keep a different variety, but to keep those sort of staples as far as fitness, nutrition, and finding some way to live in the moment, they're my sort of non-negotiables. With I guess your daily routine for working out in terms of like what you did back in the army versus I guess what you do now in everyday life, yeah. is, is it too, is it similar or is it a lot different? Huge difference. And look, that was one of the biggest parts I struggled with. I yeah, really right. used to be known for my fitness from physical challenges through to just, you know, it was for a performance outcome. And it was in a culture where everyone was working out to be their hardest and was for a purpose. Whereas what's my purpose now to look good at the beach or to, you know, look for competitions to provide that purpose. And about six months ago, I had to go through a bit of a humble pie where I got a trainer. I actually started doing a lot more group fitness classes as opposed to just training myself because I need that group motivation mm -hmm. and just appreciating that I didn't have the same parameters that saw me perform to my best. So I needed to manufacture those and it came down to the different ways I needed motivation and accountability. So, I mean, a lot of people are going to ask, but what, yeah. what can you walk us through roughly what a, a general workout for you would look like? Yeah, for sure. So I've got a, a trainer now and I do my own um, gym workouts. You know, for instance, today was, you know, legs. <laughs> so I went and did my squats and all my normal sort of hypertrophy training. Right. So you kind of break it down into days. Yeah. Yeah. Specific parts. Yep. Chest and tries, back and biceps, shoulders, abs, legs. Uh, and then I'll usually try and do two or three group fitness classes a week. Uh, that might be, I really enjoy boxing. 
Um, I really find boxing great for me physically and mentally, particularly doing the focus pads with someone forces you to be right there in the moment. And also you get that immediate feedback from progressing in skill uh, through to just something that makes me puff and breathe. Mm. One of the biggest issues I found is particularly with gym workouts, I can get bigger and stronger, but you're not pushing yourself into that cardio zone. And the second lesson we would teach the guys is stress recognition and regulation and breathing techniques are huge. Box breathing, you know, in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four, through to eight in, eight out. Before ever giving orders, before ever doing a media conference or anything, I do my own breathing techniques because so much in today's society, we shallow breathe, which encourages anxiety. We don't fully activate our entire circulatory system and VO2 system. Uh, so forcing yourself to do a high impact or um, yeah, hit or cardio forces you to breathe deeply, forces you to actually really spike um, your own anaerobic and aerobic system. And again, that has direct performance outcomes. So I make sure I do, you know, two or three of those a week as well. That's, that's amazing. In terms of, um, you know, you spoke about being able to deal with problems and, and problem solving. And that's one of the things that you excel at. Yep. Tying this into business um, yeah. now and with a lot of people that listen to this show, they're either startups or they're, they're just about to start or they could be 12 months through their journey. And obviously, one of the biggest things when it comes to being an entrepreneur and having your own business is, you know, you're wearing 50 to 100 different hats. Like, yeah. you're not just the boss. It's, you know, you're having to do sales. You're having to do marketing. You've got to deal with the accounts. You've got to deal with everything. Yeah. Um, and that comes down to problem solving. Yeah. So, for a lot of people that everyone struggles with it in terms of how to grow and scale their business, but problem solving would have to be, I guess, one of the the biggest thing that you deal with on a day-to-day basis in business. Yeah. Is there a certain tactic or a mindset around problem solving that you have adopted that's helped you? Yeah, I think we call it sort of task analysis. And the whole thing that I'm trying to get better at still these days is what are the problems that only I can solve? And what are the problems I need to train others to be able to solve for me? Otherwise, I'm sitting there and my issue is, I'll speak to someone and hear a problem they're having and want to help them solve it. And I will overextend myself left, right, and center. And whatever that is in business, particularly if you are a competent and ambitious person, then you're going to encounter that same problem. So it's truly figuring out what are all the problems you need to be solved? What are those required that we call mission essential tasks that need to be solved or need to have your oversight in some way? Because if they fail, they will directly topple the deck of cards. And what are those you need to train and develop people to, to bring up and to be able to actually have um, that continuity and also that progression throughout? And um, yeah, my, my quest these days is to try and limit myself to solving those problems that only I can and spend the rest of the time helping others to learn how to solve the rest of the problems. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I just want to say us again, thank you so much for coming on the show today, mate. We're definitely going to have to do another episode because we did not get everything in. <laughs> no, my pleasure. Thanks for doing this and um, particularly the... The business focus. I love it. it for is, me, it's, it's just focusing on people. The rest of you can do the, the smart stuff. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Sam.